First Corinthians, First Corinthians, fifteen one through five. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. You may be seated. Well, I certainly thank you for your presence this evening. It's always uh, encouraging, encouraging to me to hear these beautiful songs and to be involved in our worship together tonight, and I'm very grateful for each one of you being with us. And I want to amen the comments that Phil had made with regard to the wonderful day that we've had today with the luncheon that we had and the wonderful fellowship that we enjoyed and all of the plans, the preparations that went into that. I'm very grateful for each one. And and uh, these deacons and deacons' wives did such a wonderful job in putting everything together and, and done in such an orderly fashion, and uh, many of us take that for granted. But we ought to express our appreciation to them for the fine way in which they took care of everything. And I always look forward to those occasions together. Thank you, Marvin, for the prayer. And I do solicit your prayers in my behalf from time to time, and we pray uh, that Carol will continue to improve as she is, and I'm very grateful for all the kind comments and the prayers and the cards which you've given in her behalf, and we hope that she'll be back home soon and be back with us just as soon as she possibly can, and her surgery has gone very well, and it's just taking time for her to recover. Knee surgery is pretty serious surgery, you understand, and uh, it's going to take a little while for her to get back on her feet like she once was. Well, with all of that said and done, I'm very grateful for this occasion that brings us together. And I'd like for us to turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I hope that you have your Bible and that you'll turn to it and that you'll follow along with me as I go through this chapter. It's a chapter that I've studied many times and I've thought about it considerably and I know you have as well. Uh, there's a lot to it. Really on my mind is the last of the chapter, verse 58. And I really wanted to talk about verse 58. But as I read more about that, I kept thinking how important it is for understanding the context of this chapter. And so it would be wonderful for us just to go through the 15th chapter. So that's my purpose tonight. I want to look at the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. But then I want to look at what the work of the church is. If you'll notice in the last portion of the chapter... He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I really wanted to examine verse 58. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, we need to examine this whole chapter and really put this context together. There are a lot of difficult passages in this particular passage, and for that reason, sometimes it's ignored or just taken for granted. I'm reminded of the student in college who was uh, studying zoology. He's a brilliant student, made straight A's in every course. He comes up to his final exam in zoology, spent hours preparing for it, 
walks into the laboratory and the professor says, all right, here's your examination. And he sees a number of birds on the table there, the examination table, several different kinds, some fowl, some birds of prey, different kinds, but he didn't know what they were. They were all covered up. The only thing that he could see were their legs. And the professor said, now that's going to be your final examination in zoology. You're going to be asked to identify every one of these birds just by looking at their legs. And the student just went into a rage over that. He said, you don't mean that's my final exam? The professor said, that's the final exam. He said, well, who could do that? I've studied long and hard for this final exam. And you're asking me to take a final exam where all I can do is look at their legs and identify each one of these birds just by looking at the legs. And they just went on back and forth and back and forth. And the student thought it was ridiculous. And the professor said, no, that's what you're going to have to do until finally the student picked his books up and started walking out of the laboratory. And the professor said, wait a minute, young man. I need to know your name. And the student turned around, pulled his britches leg up, and said, you figure it out. Well, that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to figure this out. We're going to look at a difficult text of uh, Scripture, and we're going to figure out what the Apostle Paul wants us to know by means of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The very first point that we're going to see is Paul's talking about the prominence of the resurrection. It is a prominent doctrine. And as you read these first few verses verses 1 through 4, he talks about two major issues. One is it's prominent in our salvation, and secondly, it's prominent in the Scriptures. As you read through these, notice how he makes this point. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received in which you stand and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you. Now we need, and we've done this in the past, to look at the tense of those verbs. And we pay particular attention to preached and received, in which you stand. You are being saved, showing that is a process which takes place. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you. Verse 3 and 4 tells us how prominent it is not only in salvation, but also in the matter of the Scripture, that the resurrection of Christ is a very prominent teaching coming from the Scripture itself. For I delivered to you at first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried and that He was raised from on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. And so he tells us these are fundamental issues. And this issue of the resurrection is a fundamental issue with regard to our salvation and from the Scripture itself. But then he begins to talk about proofs of the resurrection. And he goes into a series of post-resurrection appearances of Christ. And he immediately talks about the fact of the resurrection from the standpoint of the evidence. He says, well, he was seen by Peter. And then he was seen by the apostles with, ja- with Thomas absent. And then he was seen by James, the half-brother of the Lord. And then he was seen by over 500 brethren at one time, some of which have not fallen asleep. And I've often thought that was an interesting way for him to put that. Because what he's saying there is, if you doubt this, some of them are still alive, and you can go find out. You can go ask them. They were there. They saw the resurrected body of Christ. Now, some of them have died, but some of them have not fallen asleep, and they're still alive for you to question. And then he says he was seen by all of the apostles with Thomas present, and then he makes the point he was also seen by me. 
which was one born out of due season. And Paul makes two important points with regard to himself. He talks about his unworthiness in this matter, and he talks about the unmerited favor and the grace of God. And let me stop for a moment and read those verses for you. They are found in verse 8 through 11. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And naturally, he's reflecting on his prior life, that he was not the kind of man he should have been. He persecuted the church of God and persecuted the way of Christ. And I suppose that thought and that reality never really left his thinking, though he had repented of that long ago. And then he talks about what God's grace has done for him, beginning at about verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's not promoting himself or boasting about himself, but he's saying, look what the grace of God did for me. And look at how the will of God changed my life. And look how productive the will of God has been and the grace of God has been. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Look what the grace of God was able to accomplish in the life of this great man of God. And I don't know of anything that could change a man whose hatred for Christians was second to none into the most dynamic of gospel preachers, perhaps second only to Jesus himself. That's what the grace of God was able to accomplish with this man. And he never forgot that, and we should never forget it either. But then he gives us a third point that we need to spend some time with, and that's the protest against the resurrection of Christ. And this particular section of the chapter really is divided into two paragraphs. You're going to see part of it in verses 13 through 19. And then you're going to see another prong of his defense of this in verses 29 through 34. And both of these are very interesting paragraphs. And I want to spend just a minute or two explaining and examining these important matters. A charge is given, verse 12. There are some who are actually denying the resurrection of Christ. There are some who are even denying the resurrection altogether. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, verse 12, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So evidently that was a problem there. If you'll recall, the Sadducees were people who did not believe in the resurrection of Christ. If you'll recall, when Paul was in Athens in Acts chapter 17 on that great missionary journey, when he was giving that sermon on Mars Hill, When he got to the matter of the resurrection, many of them scoffed and spurned the idea and would not listen to him anymore. There were many pagans who would not accept or embrace the idea of the resurrection. Perhaps some of those have now been converted to Christ. And they bring that baggage over into the church. And they're beginning to say, Christ was not raised from the dead. And we do not believe in a resurrected body or a resurrected Christ. So that's the charge that we have in verse 12. But he answers these matters beginning in verse 13 through 19 and then go from 29 to 34. And I'll cover very briefly and as succinctly as I know how both of those prongs as he answers the protest against the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the body. 
The first matter are the consequences that take place if we're going to allow this doctrine to stand. What are the consequences that follow if we grant there is no resurrection of the dead? In very true rabbinical fashion, he looks at that in very logical order. I thought about it very seriously. Logicians have an argument that's called modus tollens. A modus tollens argument is an argument that says if this follows from that and it's false, then that is false. In other words, if P implies Q, but Q is false, that means the P is false. Whatever the P stands for, whatever the Q stands for. We might say it in a verbal type of way and explain it this way. Any doctrine that implies a false doctrine, that doctrine itself is false. And I might add this as a caveat. Any preacher who preaches a doctrine that would cause others to be lost, him himself will be lost. This is the argument form that Paul uses as he goes through this particular prong of his defense against those protesting against the resurrected Christ. First, how can we live with such consequences as this? Obviously, this non-resurrection doctrine implies false doctrine. For example, what does it mean for people who are living? It means that we have believed a lie in verse 13. It means that Christ has not even been raised from the dead in verse 14. It means that our preaching is worthless, that is vain. It means that our faith is also vain. For our faith to be vain means our trust in Christ, our trust in God is worthless and of no value whatsoever. This doctrine, the non-resurrection doctrine, implies false consequences we cannot live with. And notice further still, we are still in our sins. If in Christ, verse 19, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now that's what the consequences are for those of us who are living. But what would be the consequences of those who are dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, in verse 18, then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So this particular false doctrine has a false conclusion and a false implication. The implication obviously is false. And who is willing to concede to that? Who is willing to live with that kind of result? There in turn, we are all men most pitiable. Uh, I think it would probably be good to go on to verse 33 and look at the charge that he gives as a result of this particular notion that there is no resurrection of the dead. Now what I'm doing is following his argumentation. He's answering the protesters against the resurrection in this section of the chapter. And as he does this, he says, now do not be deceived, verse 33. Bad company ruins good morals. Don't let these people lead you down the wrong path. Your associations are leading you into error, and don't let that happen. If it is the case, then what is our present situation? Verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's nothing to life. So what's the point of living? 
if there is no resurrection of the dead? And what was the point of me facing the suffering and the persecution that I did in Ephesus if there is no resurrection of the dead? And what is the point of that? Who could live with these consequences if we were to talk about the idea there is no resurrection of the dead or there is no resurrection of Christ? Don't let these people lead you down the wrong way. And he said in verse 34, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Wake up out of this false notion and get it behind you and don't embrace it. Don't accept it and reject it. Now that's the first prong of what he says in response to those protesting against the resurrection of the dead. I said there were two responses that he gave in this chapter. The second one begins back in verse 29. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29, and let's study that just for a brief moment. I suppose verse 29 is probably the most controversial passage out of the whole chapter. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead, if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? The Mormon church took this as what they've come to call proxy baptism. In other words... If your relative, your friend, your neighbor, your spouse, whoever it is, refused to be baptized, refused to be a Christian, and died, then you could be baptized in their place. And they would go to 1 Corinthians 15 and 29 to try to support that false notion. The fact of it being false is seen from the standpoint that obedience or disobedience is not transferable in the Scripture. Ezekiel in chapter 18 and 20 said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. You and I are going to be responsible for what we say and what we do, or what we fail to do, or what we fail to say. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 makes it clear, each one of us are going to be held accountable for what we've done in this life. There is no proxy baptism. I can't be baptized for you. You can't be baptized for me. I can't repent for you. You can't repent for me. There is no transferability with regard to disobedience or obedience. Perhaps an illustration will help us see the error of this. In Matthew chapter 25, you have discussion of the ten virgins, five foolish, and five wise. And Matthew 25 comes on the heels of this great discussion of the second coming in Matthew chapter 24 and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Another challenging chapter within itself. But in Matthew chapter 25, you see these ten virgins. Now the bridegroom tarried, he waited, showing how important and what a social event a marriage ceremony was in first century times. Now those who had prepared themselves ahead of time brought extra oil in their vessels. While they waited for the bridegroom, the foolish virgins, the oil had run out. And so they turned to the wise virgins and they say, let us have some of your oil. But the wise virgin said, if we do that, we won't have enough for ourselves. Go buy from those who sell. Well, when they went to buy extra oil for their lamps, the bridegroom came and the call went out. Go ye up and meet with the bridegroom. And so those who were wise trimmed their lamps and went up to go into the marriage feast with the bridegroom. What is the point? The point is the prepared were ready for the coming of the bridegroom. The point that Jesus is making is, we do not know when the bridegroom's going to come. We don't know when Christ will come. No one knows that. 
Matthew chapter 25 and Matthew chapter 24 make that very clear for us. Therefore, we've got to be prepared ahead of time. Now, if the proxy baptism doctrine were true, you wouldn't have to prepare. Somebody else could be baptized in your place. You could live your entire life the kind of life you wanted to, regardless of what you saw in the Scripture, and in turn, somebody could be baptized for you in your behalf after you had died. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that each one of us must make proper preparation before the bridegroom comes. It's an illustration to help us to always be prepared. We could look at another. We could look at Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man who fared sumptuously every day, and there was poor Lazarus who was at his gate filled with sores. One day Lazarus died and was carried in the bosom of Abraham, his father, and there in turn the rich man also died and lifted up his eyes in torment. And Abraham informed the rich man, there's a great gulf fixed between the two of us. You can't come over here and he can't go over there. Oh, send Lazarus over here. Tip his finger and water and cool my tongue. And Abraham said, no, it's not going to happen. You're not coming from there over here. And he's not going over there. There's a great gulf fixed between the two. There is no transference after death. As you were found in death, so shall you be found in eternity. Luke chapter 16 teaches us clearly. Seeing what it does not teach, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. What does it teach? 1 Corinthians 15 and 29. 1 Corinthians 15, 29, if you were to look at the commentaries and the discussion, it seems to me that I counted some 30-plus different versions and views about verse 29. It seems to me that something like 32 or 33, I can't recall now, as I was doing some research on this particular passage, how many different views there are on 1 Corinthians 15, 29. But basically what Paul is saying is it would be inconsistent... Why would you be baptized at all if you didn't believe in the resurrection? Because baptism figures a death and a resurrection. Then why be baptized? Why were those who had died baptized if there is no resurrection of the dead? Because baptism figures a death, a burial, and a resurrection. It would be inconsistent with your position. And then he goes on to say, why would I face persecution and suffering the way I have, the way other apostles have, if there is no resurrection of the dead. That is the second prong of his answer to those who are protesting the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of all men. But here's a point I really like to think about. I call it the program of the resurrection. And this particular point starts for us back in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 23. But each in his own order. That's why I use the word program there. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Well he continues this discussion on down through about verse 28. But what he's saying is. And there's a point or two in verse 28 I wish I knew more about. 
But what he's saying in this particular program is, or this particular element of the program, there's a certain order to this. Christ is the first to be raised, never to die again. Christ was raised from the dead, and we're going to be raised from the dead. One day, when Christ comes again, there is the first Adam who brought death into the world, and then there is the second who brought life into the world, and that's Jesus Christ, verse 21 and 22. Christ is the first to be resurrected, and then the rest of us will be resurrected in that order. And then will come the end, verse 24. And let me speak just for a moment about that. Then comes the end. Well, when does the end come? I don't know. No one knows. Matthew 24 and verse 36. Well, we might ask the question, the end of what? Well, it'll be the end of time. It'll be the end of all the earth. It'll be the end of all earthly powers. It'll be the end of the present phase of the heavenly kingdom, the church. And it'll be the end of death itself. Death will come to an end. Everything. For God, verse 27, has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it is says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. He's simply talking about the ascension of Christ and Christ reigning as king over his kingdom. And he put everything in subjection except himself, God did, do the reign of Christ as king. Now, an interesting verse which I wish I knew more about is verse 28. And I'll give you my take on it, and it's just my take. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What's he getting at there in verse 28? Other than Christ has so identified himself with humanity that there's ever going to be a relationship and a connection between Christ and mankind. And I wish I knew more about that, and I wish I knew more to explain about that, verse 28. But it is a powerful passage that no doubt teaches of the love of Jesus Christ for mankind, for our souls. And I think verse 28 bears serious thought and consideration. The program. Here's another very interesting part of 1 Corinthians 15 that I love to study and think about, and that's the pattern. Now, what will the body be like? And just in true, again, rabbinical fashion, this is just a good way to write. Uh, he talks about now, here's going to be an objection. I can visualize a couple of objections coming up. And it's good to prepare and to think about, well, what will the opposition say about this? But someone will ask, verse 35, somebody's going to say something about this. They're not going to just let this uh, be accepted and go as true. But somebody's going to offer an objection or two, and here they are. How are the dead raised? They actually, and when you think about that, that is an absurd question. And then this perhaps is more of an interesting question. With what kind of body do they come? But you notice how Paul answers that kind of objection. You foolish person. Why would you ask a question like that? How are the dead raised? Doesn't God have the power to raise the dead? Would that be anything to God? To raise the dead? Well, that's nothing to God who created us in the very beginning. 
Why would anyone raise the question, well, how are the dead going to be raised? That's nothing for God to raise the dead. Now, I think a more sobering question would be, what kind of body is it going to come? What kind of body is God going to give it? And through the course of this paragraph, his basic point is, God gives it the body of God's choosing. What is going to come from the grave? What is going to be resurrected from the dead? What kind of body will it have? How will it happen? God's going to make it happen by His divine power. Well, what kind of body is it going to have? God's going to give it a body fit for the resurrection. You have earthly bodies that are fit for this realm, and then God's going to give it a spiritual body fit for that realm. There are physical bodies, and then there are spiritual bodies, all designed by God. And God will give it the body that is fit for eternity. Let me give you an example. Here you have a seed, Paul says. That seed first dies. Then a new plant comes from that seed and germinates from the seed. Well, from a dead seed comes a new living plant. Does the new living plant look like the dead seed? No. There's a different form. There's a different body that comes from the dead seed. There is still a connection between the dead seed and the new living body, the plant. Or you might look at it this way. There's animal flesh and there's human flesh. Is animal flesh the same as human flesh? No. It's not the same. One is superior to the other. Or you might look at it this way. There are bodies that are terrestrial. There are bodies that are celestial. There's the sun and then there's the moon. Does the moon have the same glory and the same brightness as the sun? Paul says no. God has given it its own body for its own purpose by His own design and that's what's going to come from the grave. A resurrected body designed and fit for eternity. God can do it. God can raise the dead by His own power and God will give it a body that's fit for the purpose which God has in mind. Paul says, I understand it's a hard concept to follow because all we can experience is the earthly, the material. But I want you to notice something, that the resurrected body will be a perfect body, perfect for the purpose which God had intended. The physical body is sown and it perishes, verse 42, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written. Here's another illustration from history that he gives us. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, which is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. He will give life to the resurrected body. But it is not the spiritual that is first. You have an order. First will be the physical. The physical must die. And from that will come the spiritual body at the day of resurrection. That means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. They are alive because God has given them that spiritual body. They are not the same in nature A change has taken place, but at the same time, they still have their identity. There's still a connection between this new spiritual body that they have and the old body that died and decayed. 
just like there was a connection between the kernel of corn that died, but yet germinating from that a new life-giving body. So it will be in eternity. Now, I want to talk about another point here, and this is really what got me going on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then the apex of this study for me was verse 58, which I will have to save for next Sunday evening. And I hope that you'll be with us as we look at this great passage of Scripture. But let me drill down now on this last point that the Apostle is giving us in this very challenging chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the promise of the resurrection. We need this. We need this promise, and I'll tell you why. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I want to give you a secret here. This is a mystery. It's not a rabbit being pulled out of the hat. But it's been a secret for a long time, but now God's revealing it. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. How? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it'll be sudden. At the last trump, that'll be the signal. When that great archangel of God plants one foot on the land and one foot on the sea and heralds throughout the ages and all eternity, behold, he cometh at that great time and that great signal. The end will be, and we will be changed. A fundamental change will take place in composition between the physical into that which is spiritual. Those who happen to be alive at the time will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Those who are dead will be raised to life immortal, those who have been faithful and righteous to the will and word of God. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, here's the scripture on it, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He uses these Old Testament passages to help us understand the horrible nature of death. That's our last enemy. Death will come to an end. Death is looked upon as a horrible monster that kills with a sting. And now the righteous look at death and they say, What have you got now? It's all been taken away from you. We have the victory in Christ Jesus. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory now? Almost as if he's mocking death. You got nothing on us now. We have no reason to be fearful of you now because now we have victory in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. We need it. We need the promise because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We need this promise that God is going to raise us from the dead by His mighty power and He's going to raise us incorruptible with a body that is fit for eternity by His own divine design. That way we don't have to fear death. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, which no one could keep perfectly. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. There was a renewal of the accountability of sin year after year. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But now we have the victory through the gospel. Through the preaching and through the teaching of the gospel of Christ. 
that everyone can look at death in the face and say, I have no fear of you because I'm going to live after this life by the power of God, and that's a promise God has made. And now the verse that I wanted to preach about tonight. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. To be steadfast means don't give any ground on this. You got some there at Corinth who don't want to believe in the resurrection of the body. They don't want to believe in the resurrection of Christ. Don't you give ground on this. You be steadfast, immovable. Don't be nudged away from the truth of the Word of God. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? There's a lot of work that needs to be done out there. There are a lot of people that need to be taught this. There are a lot of people who need to be taught the promise that we have in Christ Jesus. And it can be theirs if we can teach them. And then they, by their own free will, choose to obey the gospel of Christ. There's a lot of work there. There's a lot of brethren out there that have wasted their lives on the mountaintop of sin far and wide. And are no longer with us because they've been weak and unfaithful. And they've fallen away. There's a lot of work that needs to be done there. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in building up the church and strengthening the church with the Word of God and encouraging ourselves to live the faithful Christian life, to say the right thing and think the right thing and do the right thing and be the right thing, to have the mind of Christ, as Paul told us to have in the book of Philippians. There's a lot of work needs to be done there. There's a lot of work needs to be done in teaching these children. We've got children here that need to understand the Word of God. There's a lot of work there to live before them the example that they need to see and hear and learn and to teach them and instruct them and guide them and, and chasten them and nurture them in the admonition of the Lord. We've got a lot of work needs to be done. Never losing sight of the fact that there's work to be done. Do, done. Let us be abounding in the work of the Lord. There's sick folks need visiting. Sick folks that are down on their backs, they'd love to be here tonight, but they can't be here tonight because of illness or because of operations, because of loss of health. There's a lot of work needs to be done. Don't fail in that. Always abounding, always working in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. When it's work that's done in behalf of the Lord by the authority of Christ, that labor is never in vain. Now, there's a lot of work out there a person can do, and if it's not done in Christ, it's in vain. But when that work is done according to the authority of Christ, that labor is not in vain. And it doesn't matter how great that work is or how insignificant it may seem to be to us. It's not in vain. Whether it's giving someone a cool drink of water or if it's helping someone in a very serious way, perhaps teaching them an important Bible lesson from the Word of God and them seeing that and repenting of their sins and being baptized into Christ for their mission of sins. A great work like that, the honorable work of teaching others the Word of God, the Gospel of Christ. It doesn't matter how important it may be or how insignificant it may seem. No work goes unnoticed in the sight of the Lord and Paul says, because of what we know, let's always abound in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. But we're going to hear more about that 
Lord willing. If you've never been obedient to the gospel of Christ, I urge you to do that tonight. To repent of sin and confess your faith, be baptized into the Lord for the remission of your sins. Confess your faith in Jesus, and hearing the gospel, have faith produced in your heart. And if you've been unfaithful, repent of that tonight. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.